65. Hypothesis. As we dig further into this project, I am left questioning the very nature of God. How can a God exist in all things, yet have a substance that can be destroyed? From Rhythm of War, page 21. Light was far more interesting than Navani had realized. It constantly surrounded them, flooding in through windows and beaming from gemstones. A second ocean, white and pure, so omnipresent it became invisible. Navani was able to order texts brought from Kolinar, ones she'd presumed lost to the conquest. She was able to get others from around the tower, and there were even a few with relevant chapters already here in the library room. All were collected at Raboniel's order and delivered without question to Navani for study. She consumed the words. Locked away as she was, she couldn't do much else. Each day she wrote mundane instructions to her scholars and hid ciphered messages within them that equated to nonsense. Rushu would know what she was doing from context, but the fused? Well, let them waste their time trying to figure out a reason to the fiddle-de-grack she wrote. Their confusion might help her slip through important messages later. That didn't take much time, and she spent the rest of her days studying light. Surely there could be no harm in her learning, as Raboniel wanted, and the topic was so fascinating. What was light? Not just stormlight, but all light. Some of the ancient scholars claimed you could measure it. They said it had a weight to it. Others disagreed, saying instead that it was the force by which light moved that one could measure. Both ideas fascinated her. She'd never thought of light as a thing. It simply was. Excited, she performed an old experiment from her books, splitting apart light into a rainbow of colors. All you had to do was put a candle in a box, use a hole to focus the light, then direct it through a prism. Then, curious, she extrapolated and, after several attempts, was able to use another prism to recombine the component colors into a beam of pure white light. Next, she used a diamond infused with stormlight instead of a candle. It worked the same, splitting into components of light, but with a larger band of blue. Void light did the same, though the band of violet was enormous and the other colors mere blips. That was strange. As her research indicated different colors of light should only make bands brighter or weaker, not increase their size. The most interesting result happened when she tried the experiment on the tower light Raboniel had collected. It wasn't stormlight or lifelight, but a combination of the two. When she tried the prism experiment with this light, two separate rainbows of colors, distinct from one another, split out of the prism. She couldn't recombine them. When she tried sending the colors through another prism, she ended up with one beam of white-blue light and a separate beam of white-green light, overlapping but not combined as tower light was. She sat at the table, staring at the two dots of light on the white paper. That green one, could it be lifelight? 
She likely couldn't have told the difference between it and Stormlight without the two to compare. It was only next to one another that Stormlight looked faintly blue and Lifelight faintly green. She stood up and dug through the trunk of personal articles she'd had Raboniel's people fetch for her, looking for her journals. The day of Gavilar's death was still painful to remember, fraught with a dozen different conflicting emotions. She'd recorded her impressions of that day's events six separate times in differing emotional states. Sometimes she missed him, at least the man he had once been, when they'd all schemed together as youths, planning to conquer the world. That was the face he'd continued to show most everyone else after he'd started to change. And so, for the good of the kingdom, Navani had played along. She'd created a grand charade after his death, writing about Gavilar the king, the unifier, the mighty but just man, the ideal monarch. She'd given him exactly what he'd wanted, exactly what she'd threatened to withhold. She'd given him a legacy. Navani closed the journal around her finger to hold her place, then took a few deep breaths. She couldn't afford to become distracted by that tangled mess of emotions. She reopened the journal and turned to the account she'd made of her encounter with Gavilar in her study on the day of his death. He had spheres on the table, she had written, some twenty or thirty of them. He'd been showing them to his uncommon visitors, most of whom have vanished, never to be seen again. There was something off about those spheres. My eyes were drawn to several distinctive ones, spheres that glowed with a distinctly alien light, almost negative, both violet and black, somehow shining, yet feeling like they should extinguish illumination instead of promote it. Navani reread the passages, then inspected the pale green light she had split out of the tower light. Life light, the light of cultivation. Could Gavilar have had this light too? Could she have mistaken lifelight diamonds for emeralds? Or would lifelight in a gemstone appear identical to a stormlight one at a casual glance? Why wouldn't you talk to me, Gavilar? She whispered. Why wasn't I worth trusting? She braced herself, then read further in her account, right up to the point where Gavilar plunged the knife in the deepest. You aren't worthy, that's why, she read. You claim to be a scholar, but where are your discoveries? You study light, but you are its opposite, a thing that destroys light. You spend your time wallowing in the muck of the kitchens and obsessing about whether or not some light eyes recognizes the correct lines on a map. Storms, that was so painful. She forced herself to linger on his words. You are its opposite, a thing that destroys light. Gavilar had spoken of the same concept as Raboniel, of light and its opposite. Coincidence? Did it have to do with that sphere that bent the air? The guard at her door began humming, then stepped to the side. Navani could guess what that meant. Indeed, Raboniel soon entered followed by that other fused who was so often nearby. The female in with a similar top knot and skin pattern, 
but a blank stare. Raboniel seemed to like to keep her near, though Navani wasn't certain if it was for protection or for some other reason. The second fused was one of the more unhinged that Navani had seen. Perhaps the more sane ones purposely kept an eye on specific insane ones to prevent them from hurting themselves or others. The insane fused walked over to the wall and stared at it. Raboniel walked toward the desk, so Navani rose and bowed to her. Ancient one, is something wrong? Merely checking on your progress, Raboniel said. Navani made room so Raboniel could bend down, the orange-red hair of her topknot brushing the table as she inspected Navani's experiment, a box letting out the illumination from a tower-like gemstone, which was split through a prism, then recombined through another into two separate streams of light. Incredible, Raboniel said. This is what you do when you experiment? Instead of fighting against me? Look, stormlight and lifelight, as I said. Yes, ancient one, Navani said. I've been reading about light. The illumination that comes from the sun or candles cannot be stored in gemstones, but stormlight can. So what is stormlight? It is not simply illumination, as it gives off illumination. It's as if stormlight is at times a liquid. It behaves like one when you draw it from a full gemstone into an empty one, mimicking osmosis. While captured, the illumination given off by stormlight behaves like sunlight. It can be split by a prism and diffuses the farther it gets from its source. But the stormlight must be different from the illumination it radiates. Otherwise, how could we hold it in a gemstone? Can you combine them? Raboniel asked. Stormlight and void light, can they be mixed? To prove that humans and singers can be unified, Navani said. Yes, of course. For that reason. She's lying, Navani thought. She couldn't be certain, as singers often acted in strange ways, but Navani suspected more here. The strange, insane fused began saying something in their language. She stared up at the wall, then said it louder. Raboniel glanced at her, hummed softly, then looked at Navani. Have you discovered anything more? That's about it, Navani said. I couldn't get lifelight and stormlight to recombine, but I don't know if this counts as truly splitting them apart as I've only split their radiation, not the pooled light itself. I've thought about your mixing of oil and water, and I am intrigued. We need to know. Can stormlight and voidlight be mixed? What would happen if they were combined? You are quite focused on that idea, ancient one, Navani said, thoughtfully leaning back. Why? It's why I came here. Raboniel said. Not to conquer? You talk of peace between us. What would that alliance be like to you if we could achieve it? Raboniel hummed a rhythm and opened Navani's box, taking out the sphere of tower light. 
The war has stretched so long. I've seen this kind of tactic play out dozens of times. We have never held the tower before, true, but we've seized oath gates, taken command posts, and held the capital of Alethala a couple of times, all part of an eternal endless slog of a war. I want to end it. I need to find the tools to truly end it for all of our sanity. And how, Navani pressed. If we work together like you want, what happens to my people? Raboniel turned the tower light sphere over in her fingers, ignoring the question. We've known about this new light ever since the tower was created but I am the one who theorized it was stormlight and lifelight combined. You have confirmed this. This is proof. Proof that what I want to do is possible. Have you ever heard of spheres that warp the air around them? Navani asked. Like they were extremely hot? Raboniel's rhythm cut off. She turned toward Navani. Where did you hear of such a thing? I remembered a conversation about it, Navani lied, from long ago, with someone who claimed to have seen one. There are theories, Raboniel said. Matter has its opposite. Negative axes that destroy positive axes when combined. This is known and confirmed by the shards' odium and honor. So some have thought. Is there a negative to light? An anti-light? I had discarded this idea. After all, I assumed that if there was an opposite to stormlight, it would be voidlight. Except, Navani said, we have no reason to believe that stormlight and voidlight are opposites. Tell me, what would happen if this theoretical negative light were to combine with its positive? Destruction, Raboniel said. Instantaneous annihilation. Navani felt cold. She'd told her scholars, the ones to whom she'd entrusted Zeth's strange sphere, to experiment with the air-warping light, to move it to different gemstones, to try using it in fabrials. Could it be that they'd somehow mixed that sphere's contents with ordinary void light? Continue your experiments. Raboniel said, putting down the sphere. Anything you need for your science shall be yours. If you can combine void light and storm light without destroying them, therefore proving they are not opposites. Well, I should like to know this. It will require me to discard years upon years of theories. I have no idea where to begin, Navani protested. If you let me have my team back, Write them instructions and put them to work, Raboniel said. You have them still? Fine, Navani said. But I have no idea what I'm doing. If I were trying to do this with liquids, I'd use an emulsifier. But what kind of emulsifier does one use on light? It defies reason. Try anyway, Raboniel said. Do this, and I'll free your tower. I'll take my troops and walk away. This knowledge is worth more than any one location, no matter how strategic. 
I'm sure, Navani thought. She didn't believe for a single heartbeat that Raboniel would do so. But at the same time, this knowledge would obviously give Navani an edge. Why did Raboniel want to prove or disprove that the two lights were opposites? What was her game here? She wants a weapon, perhaps? That explosion I inadvertently caused? Is that what Raboniel is hunting? The fused by the wall started talking again, louder this time. Again, Raboniel hummed and glanced over. What does she say? Navani asked. She asks if anyone has seen her mother. She's trying to get the wall to talk. Her mother? Navani thought, cocking her head. She hadn't thought that the fused would have parents, but of course they did. The creatures had been born mortal thousands of years ago. What happened to her mother? She's right here, Raboniel said softly, gesturing to herself. That was another hypothesis of mine that was disproven long ago. The thought that a mother and daughter serving together might help one another retain their sanity. Raboniel walked to her daughter and turned her to steer her out the door. And while singers tended not to show emotion on their faces, Navani thought for sure she could read pain in Raboniel's expression, a wince, as the daughter continued to ask for her mother, all the while staring unseeingly past her. 66. Bearer of Agonies I am not convinced any of the gods can be destroyed, so perhaps I misspoke. They can change state, however, like a spren, or like the various lights. This is what we seek. From Rhythm of War, page 21, undertext. Dalinar touched his finger to the young soldier's forehead, then closed his eyes and concentrated. He could see something extending from the soldier, radiating into the darkness. Pure white lines, thin as a hair. Some moved, though one end remained affixed to the central point, the place where Dalinar's finger touched the soldier's skin. I see them, he whispered. Finally. The Stormfather rumbled in the back of his mind. I was not certain it could be done, he said. The power of bondsmiths was tempered by honor for the good of all, ever since the destruction of Ashen. How did you know about this ability? Dalinar said, eyes still closed. I heard it described before I fully lived. Melishi saw these lines. The last bondsmith, Dalinar said, before the recreants. The same. Honor was dying, possibly mad. What can I do with these? Dalinar asked. I don't know. You see the connections all people have, to others, to spren, to time and reality itself. Everything is connected, Dalinar, by a vast web of interactions, passions, thoughts, fates. 
The more Dalinar watched the quivering white lines, the more details he could pick out. Some were brighter than others, for example. He reached out and tried to touch one, but his fingers went through it. Spren have these two, the Stormfather said, and the bond that makes radiance is similar but far stronger. I don't think these little ones are particularly useful. Surely these mean something, Dalinar said. Yes, the Stormfather said, but that doesn't mean they can be exploited. I heard Malishi say something once. Imagine you had two pieces of cloth, one red, one yellow. Before you and your brother parted, you each reached into a bag and selected one, but kept it hidden, putting it away in a box, unseen. You parted, traveling to distant quarters of the land. Then by agreement, let us say that on the same day, at the same time, you each opened your box and took out your cloth. Upon finding the red one, you'd instantly know your brother had found the yellow one. You shared something, that bond of knowledge. The connection exists, but it isn't something that can necessarily be exploited, at least not by most people. A bondsmith, though. Dalinar removed his finger and opened his eyes, then thanked the young soldier, who seemed nervous as he returned to his place near the front of the building, joining the still-disguised Zeth. Dalinar checked his arm, Fabriel. Yasna and the others should be returning from the front lines soon. The battle won, the celebrations completed. All without Dalinar. It felt so strange. Here he was, worried about Navani and the tower, but unable to do anything until he had more information. Worried about Adolin, off in Shadesmar, separated from him, like the two brothers in the Stormfather's story. Shared destinies, shared fates. Yet Dalinar felt powerless to help either his son or his wife. You do have a part in this, he told himself firmly. A duty. Master these powers. Best odium. Think on a scale bigger than one battle or even one war. It was difficult with how slowly his skills seemed to be progressing. So much time wasted. Was this what Yasna had experienced all those years, chasing secrets when nobody else had believed her? He had another duty today in addition to his practice. He'd been putting it off, but he knew he should delay no longer. So he collected Zeth and walked through the camp, turning his path toward the prison. He needed to talk to Teravangian in person. The building that housed the former king was not a true prison. They hadn't planned for one of those in the temporary war camp here in Emul. A stockade, yes, but military discipline was by necessity quick. Anything demanding more than a week or two in confinement usually resulted in a discharge or, for more serious infractions, an execution. Terebangian required something more permanent and more delicate. So they'd blocked off the windows on a sturdy home, reinforced the door, and set guards from among Dalinar's best soldiers. As Dalinar approached, he noted how the upper floor windows were now filled with stark creme bricks, mortared into place. 
It had felt wrong to give Teravangian a home instead of a cell, but seeing those windows, it also felt wrong to leave him without sunlight. Delinor nodded to the salutes at the door, then waited for the guards to undo the locks and pull the door open for him. Nobody worried about his safety or made a comment about his single guard. They all thought the precautions were to prevent Teravangian from being rescued, and would never have wondered whether the Blackthorn could handle himself against an elderly statesman. They didn't have any inkling, even now, how dangerous Teravangian was. He sat on a stool near the far wall of the main room. He'd put a ruby into the corner and was staring at it. He turned when Dalinar entered and actually smiled. Storming man. Dalinar waved for Zeth to remain right inside the door as the guards closed and locked it behind them. Then Dalinar approached the corner, wary. He'd charged into many a battle with less trepidation than he now felt. I had wondered if you would come, Terabangian said. It has been nearly two weeks since my betrayal. I wanted to be certain I wasn't somehow being manipulated, Delinor said honestly. So I waited until certain tasks were accomplished before coming to you and risking letting you influence me. Though deep down, Delinor admitted that was mostly an excuse. Seeing this man was painful. Perhaps he should have let Yasna interrogate Terabangian, as she'd suggested. But that seemed the coward's route. Ah, certain tasks are accomplished then? The old man asked. By now you've surely recovered from the betrayal of the Vaden armies. You've clashed with Odium's forces in Emul. I warned Odium that we should have moved earlier, but he was adamant, you see. This was the way he wanted it to happen. The frankness of it felt like a boot directly to Dalinar's gut. He steeled himself. That stool is too uncomfortable for a man of your years. You should be given a chair. I thought they'd left the building furnished. Do you have a bed? And surely they gave you more than a single sphere for light. Dalinar, Dalinar, Terabangian whispered. If you wish me to have comfort, don't ask after the chair or the light. Answer my questions and talk to me. I need that more than- Why? Delinar interrupted. He held Teravangian's gaze and was shocked at how much asking the question hurt. He'd known the betrayal was coming, he'd known what this man was. Nevertheless, the words were agonizing as they slipped from his lips again. Why? Why did you do it? Because, Dalinar, you're going to lose. I'm sorry, my friend. It is unavoidable. You can't know that. Yet I do. He sagged in his seat, turning toward the corner and the glowing sphere. Such a poor imitation of our comfortable sitting room in Eurythiru. Even that was a poor imitation of a real hearth, crackling with true flames, alive and beautiful. An imitation of an imitation. That's what we are, Dalinar. 
a painting made from another painting of something great. Perhaps the ancient radiance could have won this fight when honor lived. They didn't. They barely survived. Now we face a god, alone. There is no victory awaiting us. Delinor felt cold, not shocked, not surprised. He supposed he could have figured out Terebangian's reasoning. They'd talked often about what it meant to be a king. The discussions had grown more intense, more meaningful, once Dalinar had realized what Terevangian had done to acquire the throne of Yakoved. Once he'd known that, instead of chatting with a kindly old man with strange ideals, he had been talking to another murderer, a man like Dalinar himself. Now he felt disappointed because in the end Teravangian had let that side of him rule. No longer on the edge. His friend, yes, they were friends, had stepped off the cliff. We can defeat him, Teravangian, Delinar said. You are not nearly so smart as you think. I agree. I was once, though he clarified, perhaps noticing Dalinar's confusion. I visited the old magic, Dalinar. I saw her, not just the Night Watcher, I suspect, but the other one, the one you saw. Cultivation, he said. There is one who can face Odium. There were three gods. She won't fight him, Teravangian said. She knows. How do you think I found out we'd lose? She told you that? Delinar strode forward, squatting down beside Teravangian, coming to eye level with the aged man. She said Odium would win? I asked her for the capacity to stop what was coming, Teravangian said. And she made me brilliant, Delinar transcendingly brilliant. But just once, for a day. I vary, you know. Some days I'm smart, but my emotions seem stunted. I don't feel anything but annoyance. Other days I'm stupid, but the tiniest bit of sentimentality sends me into tears. Most days I'm like I am today. Some shade of average. Only one day of brilliance. One single day. I've often wished I'd get another, but I guess that was all that cultivation wanted me to have. She wanted me to see for myself. There was no way to save Roshar. You saw no possible out. Delinor said. Tell me honestly, was there absolutely no way to win? Terabangian fell silent. Nobody can see the future perfectly, Delinor said, not even Odium. I find it impossible to believe that you, no matter how smart, could have been absolutely certain there was no path to victory. Let's say you were in my place, Terabangian said. You saw a shadow of the future, the best anyone has ever seen it. 
better, in fact, than any mortal could achieve. And you saw a path to saving Alethkar. Everyone you love, everything you know, you saw a very plausible, very reasonable opportunity to accomplish this goal. But you also saw that to do more, to save the world itself, you would have to rely on such wild bets as to be ludicrous. And if you failed at those very, very, very long odds, you'd lose everything. Tell me honestly, Dalinar, would you not consider doing what I did, taking the rational choice of saving the few? Teravangian's eyes glistened. Isn't that the way of the soldier? Accept your losses and do what you can. So you sold us out? You helped hasten our destruction? For a price, Dalinar, Teravangian said, staring again at the ruby that was the room's hearth. I did preserve Carbranth. I tried, I promise you, to protect more. But it is, as the Radians say, life before death. I saved the lives of as many as I could. Don't use that phrase, Delinor said. Don't sully a Teravangian with your crass justifications. Still standing on your high tower, Delinor? Teravangian asked. Proud of how far you can see when you won't look past your own feet? Yes, you're very noble. How wonderful you are, fighting until the end, dragging every human to death with you. They can all die knowing you never compromised. I made an oath, Dalinar said, to protect the people of Alethkar. It was my oath as a high prince. After that, a greater oath, the oath of a radiant. And is that how you protected the Alethi years ago, Dalinar? when you burn them alive in their cities. Delinar drew in a sharp breath, but refused to rise to that barb. I'm not that man any longer. I changed. I take the next step, Teravangian. I suppose that is true. And my statement was a useless jibe. I wish you were that man who would burn one city to preserve the kingdom. I could work with that man, Dalinar. Make him see. See that I should turn traitor? Yes. As you live now, protecting people isn't your true ideal. If that were the case, you'd surrender. No. Your true ideal is never giving up, no matter the cost. You realize the pride in that sentiment? I refuse to accept that we've lost, Dalinar said. That's the problem with your worldview, Teravangian. You gave up before the battle started. You think you're smart enough to know the future, but I repeat, nobody knows for certain what will happen. Strangely, the older man nodded. Yes, yes, perhaps. I could be wrong. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it, Dalinar? I'd die happy knowing I was wrong. Would you? Dalinar said. Teravangian considered. 
Then he turned abruptly, a motion that caused Zeth to jump, stepping forward, hand on his sword. Teravangian, however, was just turning to point at a nearby stool for Dalinar to sit. Teravangian glanced at Zeth briefly and hesitated. Dalinar thought he caught a narrowing of the man's eyes. Damnation, he'd figured it out. The moment was over in a second. That stool, Teravangian said, pointing again. I carried it down from upstairs, in case you visited. Would you join me here, sitting as we once did, for old time's sake? Dalinar frowned. He didn't want to take the seat out of principle, but that was prideful. He would sit with this man one last time. Teravangian was one of the few people who truly understood what it felt like to make the choices that Dalinar had. Dalinar pulled over the stool and settled down. I would die happily, Teravangian said, if I could see that I was wrong. If you won. I don't think you would. I don't think you could stand not being the one who saved us. How little you know me, despite it all. You didn't come to me or any of us, Dalinar said. You say you were extremely smart. You figured out what was going to happen. What was your response? It wasn't to form a coalition. It wasn't to refound the Radiance. It was to send out an assassin, then seize the throne of Yakoved. So I would be in a position to negotiate with Odium. That argument is creme, Teravangian. You didn't need to murder people. You didn't need to be king of Yakoved to accomplish any of this. You wanted to be an emperor. You made a play for Alethkar, too. You sent Zeth to kill me instead of talking to me. Pardon, Blackthorn, but please remember the man you were when I began this. He would not have listened to me. You're so smart you can predict who will win a war before it begins, but you couldn't see that I was changing? You couldn't see that I'd be more valuable as an ally than as a corpse? I thought you would fall. Talonar. I predicted you would join Odium if left alive. Either that or you would fight my every step. Odium thought the same. And you were both wrong, Dalinar said. So your grand plan, your masterful vision of the future, was simply wrong. I, I, Terebangian rubbed his brow. I don't have the intelligence right now to explain it to you. Odium will arrange things so that no matter what choice you make, he will win. Knowing that, I made the difficult decision to save at least one city. I think you saw a chance to be an emperor and you took it, Dalinar said. You wanted power, Teravangian, so you could give it up. You wanted to be the glorious king who sacrificed himself to protect everyone else. You have always seen yourself as the man who must bear the burden of leading. Because it's true. Because you like it. If so, why did I let go? Why am I captured here? Because you want to be known as the one who saved us. No, Teravangian said. It's because I knew my friends and family could escape if I let you take me. I knew that your wrath would come upon me, not Carbranth. 
and as I'm sure you've discovered, those who knew what I was doing are no longer involved in the city's government. If you were to attack Cabranti, would attack innocents. I'd never do that. Because you have me. Admit it. Storm him, it was true. And it made Dalinar angry enough to draw a single boiling anger spren at his feet. He had no interest in retribution against Carbrant. They, like the Vadens, like Dalinar himself, had all been pawns in Teravangian's schemes. I know it is difficult to accept, Teravangian said. But my goal has never been power. It has always only been about saving whomever I could save. I can't debate that as I don't know your heart, Teravangian, Dalinar said. So instead I'll tell you something I know for certain. It could have gone differently. You could have truly joined with us. Storms, I can imagine a world where you said the oaths. I imagine you as a better leader than I ever could have been. I feel like you were so close. No, my friend, Teravangian said. A monarch cannot make such oaths and expect to be able to keep them. He must realize that a greater need might arise at any time. If so, it's impossible for a king to be a moral man. Or perhaps you can be moral and still break oaths? No, Delinar said. No, oaths are part of what define morality, Teravangian. A good man must strive to accomplish the things he's committed to do. Spoken like a true son of Tanavast, Teravangian said, clasping his hands. And I believe you, Delinar. I believe you think exactly what you say. You are a man of honor, raised to it through a life of his religion, which you might be upending, but it retains its grip on your mind. I wish I could commend that. Perhaps there was another way out of this. Perhaps there was another solution. But it wouldn't be found in your oaths, my friend and it would not involve a coalition of noble leaders. It would involve the sort of business with which you were once so familiar. No, Dalinar said. There is a just way to victory. The methods must match the ideal to be obtained. Teravangian nodded as if this were the inevitable response. Dalinar sat back on his seat, and they sat in silence together for a time, watching the tiny ruby. He hated how this had gone, how the argument forced him into the most dogmatic version of his beliefs. He knew there was nuance in every position, yet... Aligning his methods and his goals was at the very soul of what he'd learned, what he was trying to become. He had to believe there was a way to lead while still being moral. He stared at that ruby, that glimmer of red light reminiscent of an Everstorm's lightning. Dalinar had come here expecting a fight, but was surprised to realize he felt more sorrow than he did anger. He felt Teravangian's pain, his regret for what had occurred, what they had both lost. Dalinar finally stood up. You always said that to be a king was to accept pain. To accept that you must do what others cannot, Teravangian agreed. 
to bear the agonies of the decisions you had to make so that others may live pure lives. You should know that I have said my goodbyes and intentionally made myself worthless to Odium and my former compatriots. You will not be able to use my life to bargain with anyone. Why tell me this? Delinar said. You would make it worthless to keep you prisoner. Do you want to be executed? I simply want to be clear with you, Teravangian said. There is no further reason for me to try to manipulate you, Dalinar. I have achieved what I wanted. You may kill me. No, Teravangian, Dalinar said. You have lived your convictions, however misguided they may be. Now I'm going to live mine. And at the end, when I face Odium and win, you will be there. I'll give you this gift. The pain of knowing I was wrong? You told me earlier that you wished to be proven wrong. If you're sincere, and this was never about being right or about gaining power, then on that day we can embrace, knowing it is all over. Old friend. Teravangian looked at him, and there were tears in his eyes. To that day, then, he whispered, and to that embrace. Dalinar nodded and withdrew, collecting Zeth at the door. He paused briefly to tell the guards to bring Teravangian some more light and a comfortable chair. As they walked away, Zeth spoke from behind him. Do not trust his lies. He pretends to be done plotting, but there is more to him. There is always more to that one. Delinar glanced at the stoic bodyguard. Zeth so rarely offered opinions. I don't trust him, Delinar said. I can't walk away from any conversation with that man, no matter how innocent, without going over and over what he said. That's part of why I was so hesitant to go in there. You are wise, Zeth said and seemed to consider the conversation finished. 67. Song of Stones Do not mourn for what has happened. This notebook was a dream we shared, which is itself a beautiful thing. Proof of the truth of my intent, even if the project was ultimately doomed. From Rhythm of War, page 27. Venli scrambled through the hallways of Eurythiru. She shoved past a group of humans who were too slow to get out of the way, then pulled to a halt, breathing heavily as she looked out onto the balcony. That song, that song reminded her of her mother's voice. But it wasn't her, of course. The female in who sat by the balcony, weaving a mat and singing to peace, was not Jack Slim. Her red skin pattern was wrong, her hair strands too short. Venley leaned against the stone doorway as others on the balcony noticed her, and the female end's voice cut off. She glanced toward Venley and began to hum to anxiety. Venley turned and walked away, attuning disappointment. Hopefully she hadn't frightened the people. A regal looking so wild must have given them a scare. Timber pulsed inside her. I keep hearing her songs, Venley said, in the voices of people I pass. 
I keep remembering those days when I sang with her. I miss those days, Timber. Life was so simple then. Timber pulsed to the lost. She didn't have much sense left when my betrayal came, Venley explained to the Spren's question. Part of me thinks that a mercy, as she never knew about me. Anyway, it was the storms that eventually killed her. She was with the group that escaped, but they fled into the chasms, and then we did what we did. The flood that came down upon the plains that day. Timber. She drowned down there, dead by my hand as surely as if I'd stabbed her. The little spren pulsed again, consoling. She felt Venley couldn't completely be blamed for what she'd done, as the forms had influenced her mind. But Venley had chosen those forms. She often thought back to those early days, after releasing Ulim. Yes, her emotions had changed. She'd pursued her ambition more and more. But at the same time, she hadn't responded like Eshenai, who had seemed to become a different person entirely when adopting a form of power. Venli seemed more resistant, somehow. More herself, regardless of form. That should have made her attune joy, for she could only guess this had helped her escape Odium's grip. But it also made her responsible for what she'd done. She couldn't blame it on spren or forms. She'd been there, giving those orders. Timber pulsed. I helped. And yes, she had. When she'd first appeared, Venley had grown stronger, more able to resist. Thank you, Venley said. For that, and for what you continue to do. I'm not worthy of your faith, but thank you. Timber pulsed. Today was the day. Raboniel was spending all her time with Navani and seemed to be thoroughly enjoying the difficulty of manipulating the former queen. That left Venli free. She'd secured a small sack of gemstones, some with void light, some with storm light. Today she was going to see what it really meant to be on this path of radiance. She'd already selected an area in which to practice. During morning reports, Venley had learned the pursuer's scouts were carefully combing the 15th floor. The majority of Raboniel's soldiers were busy watching the humans and didn't often venture to the higher floors. So Venley had chosen a place on the 8th floor, a place that the pursuer had already searched, but that was far from population centers. The tower up here was silent and oddly reminded her of the chasms in the shattered plains. Those stone pits had also been in a place where the sun was difficult to remember, and also a place resplendent with beautiful stone. She ran her fingers across a wall, expecting to feel bumps from the vibrant strata lines, but it was smooth, like the walls of the chasms, actually. Her mother had died in those pits. Likely terrified, unable to understand what was happening as the water rushed in and Venley attuned the lost and put down her small sack of spheres. She took out a stormlight one first, then glimpsed into Shadesmar. 
she hadn't again seen the void spren she'd spotted near Relaine's cell, though she'd watched carefully these last few days. She'd eventually put Relaine together with the surgeon and his wife, and delivered all three of them to help care for the fallen radiance. Shadesmar revealed no void spren hiding in Kremlings, so she hesitantly returned her vision to the physical realm and drew in a breath of stormlight. That she could do, as she'd practiced it together with Timber over the months. Stormlight didn't work like Voidlight did. Rather than going into her gem heart, it infused her entire body. She could feel it raging, an odd feeling, more than an unpleasant one. She pressed her hand to the stone wall. Do you remember how we did this last time? She asked Timber. The little spren pulsed uncertainly. That had been many months ago and had drawn the attention of secret spren, so they had stopped quickly. It seemed, though, that all Venley had needed to do was press her hand against the wall, and her powers had started activating. Timber pulsed. She wasn't convinced it would work with Stormlight, not with the tower's defenses in place. Indeed, as Venley tried to do, well, anything with the Stormlight, she felt as if there were some invisible wall blocking her. She couldn't push the Stormlight into her gem heart to store it there not with the void spren trapped inside. So Venli let the light burn off on its own, breathing out to hasten the process. Then she took out a void light sphere. She could get these without too much trouble, but she didn't dare sing the song of prayer to create them herself. She worried about drawing Odium's attention. He seemed to be ignoring her these days, and she'd rather it remain that way. Timber pulsed encouragingly. You sure? Venley said. It doesn't seem right for some reason to use his power to fuel our abilities. Timber's pulsed reply was pragmatic. Indeed, they used void light every day, a little of it, stored in their gem heart, to power Venley's translation abilities. She wasn't certain if her ability to use void light for radiant powers came from the fact that she was a regal, or if any singer who managed a bond would be able to do the same. Today she drew the void light in like stormlight, and it infused her gem heart fully. The void light didn't push her to move or act like the stormlight had. Instead, it inflamed her emotions, in this case making her more paranoid, so she checked Shadesmar again. Still nothing there to be alarmed about. She pressed her hand to the wall again and tried to feel the stone. Not with her fingers, with her soul. The stone responded. It seemed to stir like a person awaking from a deep slumber. Hello, it said, though the sounds were drawn out. She didn't hear the words so much as feel it. You are. Familiar. I am Venli, she said, of the listeners. The stones trembled. They spoke with one voice, but she felt as if it was also many voices overlapping. Not the voice of the tower, but the voices of the many different sections of stones around her. The walls, the ceiling, the floor. 
Radiant, the stones said. We have missed your touch, Radiant. But what is this? What is that sound, that tone? Void light, Venley admitted. That sound is familiar, the stones said. A child of the ancient ones. Our friend, you have returned to sing our song again. What song? Venley asked. The stone near her hand began to undulate, like ripples on the surface of a pond. A tone surged through her. Then it began to pulse with the song of a rhythm she'd never heard, but somehow always known. A profound, sonorous rhythm, ancient as the core of Roshar. The entire wall followed suit. Then the ceiling and the floor surrounding her with a beautiful rhythm set to a pure tone. Timber with glee joined in, and so Venley's body aligned with the rhythm, and she felt it humming through her, vibrating her from carapace to bones. She gasped, then pressed her other hand to the rock, aching to feel the song against her skin. There was a rightness about this, a perfection. Oh, storms! she thought. Oh, rhythms, ancient and new, I belong here. She belonged here. So far, everything she'd done with Timber had been accidental. There had been a momentum to it. She'd made choices along the way, but it had never felt like something she deserved. Rather, it was a path she had fallen into and then taken, because it was better than her other options. But here, she belonged here. Remember, the stones said. The ground in front of her stopped rippling and formed shapes. Little homes made of stone, with figures standing beside them, shaping them. She heard them humming. She saw them. Ancient people, the dawn singers working the stone, creating cities tools. They didn't need soul casting or forges. They'd dip lengths of wood into the stone and come out with axes. They'd shape bowls with their fingers. All the while, the stone would sing to them. Feel me, shaper. Create from me. We are one. The stone shapes your life as you shape the stone. Welcome home, child of the ancients. How? Venley asked. Radiance didn't exist then. Spren didn't bond us, did they? Things are new, the stones hummed. But new things are made from old things, and old peoples give birth to new ones. Old stones remember. The vibrations quieted, falling from powerful thrummings to tiny ripples to stillness. The homes and the people melted back to ordinary stone floor, though the strata of this place had changed, as if to echo the former vibrations. Venley knelt. After several minutes, breathing in gasps, she realized she was completely out of void light. 
She searched her sack and found all of her spheres drained, save for a single mark. She'd gone through those spheres with frightening speed. But that moment of song, that moment of connection, had certainly been worth the cost. She drew in this mark, then hesitantly placed her hand to the wall again. She felt the stone, willing and pliable, encouraging her and calling her shaper. She drew out the void light, and it infused her hand, making it glow violet on black. When she pressed her thumb into the stone, the rock molded beneath her touch, as if it had become creme clay. Venley pressed her entire hand into the stone, making a print there and feeling the soft but still present rhythm. Then she pulled off a piece of the rock and molded it in her fingers. She rolled it into a ball, and the viscosity seemed to match what she needed. For when she held her hand forward and imagined it doing so, the stone ball melted into a puddle. She dropped it then, and it clicked when it hit the ground, hard, but imprinted by her fingers. She picked it up and pressed it back into the wall, where it melded with the stone there as if it had never been removed. Once she was done, she considered. I want this, Timber, she whispered, wiping her eyes. I need this. Timber thrummed excitedly. What do you mean, them? Venley asked. She looked up, noticing lights in the hallway. She attuned anxiety, but then the lights drew closer. The three little spren were like timber, in the shape of comets, with rings of light pulsing around them. This is dangerous, Venley hissed to reprimand. They shouldn't be here. If they're seen, the void spren will destroy them. Timber pulsed that Spren couldn't be destroyed. Cut them with a shard blade, and they'd reform. Venley, however, wasn't so confident. Surely the fused could do something. Trap them in a jar, lock them away. Timber insisted they'd simply fade into Shadesmar in that case, and be free. Well, it was risky, no matter what she said. These Spren seemed more awake than she'd expected, though. They hovered around her, curious. Didn't you say, Spren like you need a bond to be aware in the physical realm? An anchor? Timber's explanation was slightly ashamed. These were eager to bond Venley's friends, her squires. That had given these Spren access to thoughts and stability in the physical realm. Venley was the anchor. She nodded. Tell them to get out of the tower for now. If my friends start suddenly manifesting radiant powers and the stone starts singing in a place others could see, we could find ourselves in serious trouble. Timber pulsed, defiant. How long? Until I find a way out of this mess, Venley said. She pressed her hand to the wall, listening to the soft, contented hum of the stones. I'm like a baby taking her first steps. But this might be the answer we need, if I can sculpt us an exit through the collapsed tunnels below. I should be able to sneak us out. 
Maybe we can even make it seem like we died in a further cave-in, covering our escape. Timber pulsed encouragingly. You're correct, Venley said. We can do this, but we need to take it slowly, carefully. I rushed to find new forms, and that proved a disaster. This time, we'll do things the right way. 68. One family. Eight years ago. Escher and I accompanied her mother into the storm. Together they struck out into the electric darkness, Esh and I carrying a large wooden shield to buffer the wind for her mother, who cradled the bright orange glowing gemstone. Powerful gusts tried to rip the shield out of Esh and I's hand, and wind spren soared past, giggling. Esh and I and her mother passed others, notable for the similar gemstones they carried, little bursts of light in the tempest like the souls of the dead said to wander the storms, searching for gem hearts to inhabit. Esh and I attuned the rhythm of the terrors, sharp, each beat punctuating her mind. She wasn't afraid for herself, but her mother had been so frail lately. Though many of the others stood out in the open, Esh and I led her mother to the hollow she'd picked out earlier. Even here, the pelting rain felt like it was trying to burrow through her skin. Rain spread along the top of the ridge, seemed to dance as they waved along with the furious tempest. Esh and I huddled down beside her mother, unable to hear the rhythm the female was humming. The light of the gemstone, however, revealed a grin on Jack Slim's face. A grin? Reminds me of when your father and I came out together, Jack Slim shouted at Esh and I over the storm winds. We decided not to leave it to fate, where one of us might be taken and the other not. I still remember the strange feelings of passion when I first changed. You're too afraid of that, Esh and I. I do want grandchildren, you realize. Do we have to talk about this now? Esh and I asked. Hold that stone. Adopt the new form. Think about it, not mate form. Wouldn't that be an embarrassment? The life spren aren't interested in someone my age, her mother said. It simply feels nice to be out here again. I'd been beginning to think I would waste away. Together, they huddled against the rock, Esh and I using her shield as an improvised roof to block the rain. She wasn't certain how long it would take the transformation to begin. Esh and I herself had only adopted a new form once, as a child, when her father had helped her adopt work form, since the time of changes had come to her. Children needed no form and were vibrant without one. But if they didn't adopt a form upon puberty in their seventh or eighth year, they would be trapped in dull form instead. That form was essentially an inferior version of mate form. Today, the storm stretched long, and Eshenai's arm began to ache from holding the shield in place. Anything? she asked of her mother. Not yet. I don't know the proper mindset. 
Attune a bold rhythm, Eshonai said. That was what Venley had told them. Confidence or excitement. I'm trying. I, whatever else her mother said, was lost in the sound of thunder washing across them, vibrating the very stones, making Eshonai's teeth chatter. Or perhaps that was the cold. Normally, chill weather didn't bother her. Work form was well suited to it. But the icy rainwater had leaked through her oiled coat, sneaking down along her spine. She attuned resolve, keeping the shield in place. She would protect her mother. Jaxlim often complained that Eshenai was unreliable, prone to fancy. But that wasn't true. Her exploration was difficult work. It was valuable work. She wasn't unreliable or lazy. Let her mother see this. Eshenai holding her shield in defiance of the rain, in defiance of the rider of storms himself, holding her mother close, warming her, not weak, solid, dependable, determined. The gemstone in her mother's hands began to glow brighter. Finally, Eshenai thought, shifting to give her mother more space to enact the transformation, the recasting of her soul, the ultimate connection between listener and Roshar itself. Eshenai shouldn't have been surprised when the light burst from the gemstone and was absorbed, like water rushing to fill an empty vessel, into her own gem heart. Yet she was. Eshenai gasped, the rhythms disrupting and vanishing, all but one. An overwhelming sound she'd never heard before. A stately, steady tone. Not a rhythm, a pure note. Proud, louder than the thunder. The sound became everything to her, as her previous spren, a tiny gravitation spren, was ejected from her gem heart. The pure tone of honor pounding in her ears, she dropped the shield, which flew away into the dark sky. She wasn't supposed to have been taken, but in the moment she didn't care. This transformation was wonderful. In it, a vital piece of the listeners returned to her. They needed more than they had. They needed this. This, this was right. She embraced the change. While it happened, it seemed to her that all of Roshar paused to sing Honor's long-lost note. Eshenai came too, lying in a puddle of rainwater cloudy with creme. A single rainspring undulated beside her, its form rippling and its eyes staring straight upward toward the clouds, little feet curling and uncurling. She sat up and surveyed her tattered clothing. Her mother had left Eshenai at some point during the storm, shouting that she needed to get under cover. Eshenai had been too absorbed by the tone and the new transformation to go with her. She held up her hand and found the fingers thick, meaty, with carapace as grand as human armor along the back of the hand and up the arm. It covered her entire body, from her feet up to her head. No hair strands, simply a solid piece of carapace. The change had shredded her shirt and coat leaving only her skirt, and that had snapped at the waist, 
so it barely hung on her body. She stood up, and even that simple act felt different than it had before. She was propelled to her feet by unexpected strength. She stumbled, then gasped, attuning awe. Eshonai, an unfamiliar voice said. She frowned as a monstrous figure in reddish-orange carapace stepped over some rubble from the high storm. He had tied his wrap on awkwardly, plainly having suffered a similar disrobing. She attuned amusement, though it didn't look silly. It seemed impossible that such a dynamic, muscular figure could ever look silly. She wished there were a rhythm more majestic than awe. Was that what she looked like, too? Eshonai, the Malan said with his deep voice. Can you believe this? I feel like I could leap up and touch the clouds. She didn't recognize the voice. But that pattern of marbled skin was familiar. And the features, though now covered by a carapace skullcap, were reminiscent of food, she said, then gasped again. My voice, I know, he said. If you've ever wished to sing the low tones, Eshonai, it seems we've found the perfect form for it. She searched around to see several other listeners in powerful armor standing and attuning awe. There were a good dozen of them. Though Venley had provided around two dozen gemstones, it seemed not all of the volunteers had taken to the new form. Unsurprising, it would take them time and practice to determine the proper mindset. Were you overwhelmed too? Dianel said, striding over. Her voice was as deep as Eshonai's now, but that curl of black marbling along her brow was distinctive. I felt an overpowering need to stand in the storm basking in the tone. There are songs of those who first adopted work form, Eshonai said. I believe they mention a similar experience, an outpouring of power, an amazing tone that belonged purely to cultivation. The tones of Roshar, Thud said, welcoming us home. The twelve of them gathered, and though she knew some better than others, there seemed to be an instant connection between them, a camaraderie. They took turns jumping, seeing who could get the highest, singing to joy, as silly as a bunch of children with a new toy. Eshonai hefted a rock and hurled it, then watched it soar an incredible distance. She even drew a glory spren with flowing tails and long wings. As the others selected their own rocks to try beating her throw, she heard an incongruous sound. The drums? Yes, those were the battle drums. A raid was happening at the city. The others gathered around her, humming to confusion. An attack by one of the other families? Now? Escher and I wanted to laugh. Are they insane? Thud asked. They don't know what we've done, Eshonai said, looking around at the flat expanse of rock outside the city where they'd engaged the high storm. Many listeners were only now making their way out of the sheltered cracks in the ground. 
Their best warriors, however, would have stayed at the city in the small, strong structures built there. More than one family had claimed a city right after a storm. It was one of the best times to attack, assuming you could muster your numbers quickly enough. This is going to be fun, Melu said to excitement. I don't know if that's the correct way to think of it, Eshonai said, though she felt the same eagerness, a desire to charge in. Though, if we can arrive before the boasts are done, the others began attuning amusement or excitement, grinning. Escher and I led the way, ignoring the calls of those leaving the storm shelter. There was a more urgent matter to attend to. As they approached the city, she could see the rival family mustered outside the gateway, lifting spears and making challenges and taunts. They wore white, of course. It was how one knew an attack was happening, rather than a request for trade or other interaction. As long as the boasts were continuing, the actual battle hadn't yet begun. She'd participated in several fights for cities during her family's years trying to claim one, and they'd always been nasty affairs, the worst one leaving over a dozen people dead on each side. Well, today, they'd see about that. She stopped, holding up her hand to make the others pause. They did so though a part of Escher and I wondered why she had decided to take charge. It simply felt natural. They'd been approaching a fissure in the wall surrounding the city. That wall might once have been grand, but mere hints of its former majesty remained. Most of it had worn low, split by large gaps. Here, a figure moved in the shadows. It looked ominous, dangerous, but then Venley emerged into the light waving them forward. How had she gotten to the city so quickly? Escher and I approached, and Venley looked her up and down with a slow, deliberate gaze. The drums beat in the background, urging Escher and I forward. Yet that look in her sister's eyes. So it worked, Venley said. Praise the ancient storms for that. You look good, sister, all bulked up and ready to serve. This isn't who I am, Eshonai said, gesturing to the form. But there is a certain thrill to holding it. Go visit Sherafel, Venli said. He's waiting for you. The drums, Eshonai said. The enemy will continue howling insults for a little while yet, Venli said. Visit Sherafel. Sherafel, the family's shard bearer. Upon obtaining this city, by tradition, the defeated family had given up the city's shards for her family to protect and keep. Venli, Eshenai said, we do not use shards upon other listeners. Those are for hunts alone. Oh, sister, Venli said to amusement, walking around her, then inspecting food and the others. If we're going to ever stand a hope of resisting the humans, when they inevitably turn against us, we must be ready to bear the weapons with which we were blessed. Escher and I wanted to attune reprimand at the suggestion, but she remembered the things Dalinar Colin had said to her. 
If the listeners weren't unified, they would be easy pickings. I want to get to the fight, Melu said to excitement, an anticipation spren like a long streamer connected to a round sphere below, bouncing around behind her. I think it's worth trying not to kill anyone, Thud said to consideration. With this form, I feel it would be unfair. They're the shards, Venley urged. Show them the dangers of approaching us to demand battle. Asher and I pushed past her sister, and the others followed. Venley trailed along behind as well. Asher and I didn't intend to use the shards against her people, but perhaps there was a purpose to visiting Sherafel. She wound through the city, passing creme-filled puddles and vines stretching out from rock buds to lap up the moisture. The shard bearer's hut was by the front wall, near the drums. It was one of the strongest structures in the city, one they always kept well-maintained. Today, the door was open, welcoming. Esh and I stepped into the doorway. <sighs> A soft voice said, to the rhythm of the lost. So it is true. We have warriors once more. Esh and I stepped forward, finding the elderly listener sitting in his seat. Light from the doorway, illuminating his pattern of mostly black skin. Feeling it appropriate, even if she didn't quite know why, she knelt before him. I have long sung the old songs, Sherafal said, dreaming of this day. I always thought I would be the one to find it. How? What's Spren? Pain Spren, Eshonai said. They flee during storms. We captured them, Eshenai said, as a couple of others entered the chamber, striking dangerous silhouettes. Using a human method. Ah, he said. I shall try it myself then, at the next storm. But this is a new era, and deserves a new shard bearer. Which of you will take my shards? Which of you can bear this burden and this glory? The group became still. Not all families had shard bearers. There were only eight sets among all the listeners. Those who held the proper eight cities were blessed with them, to be wielded only in hunts against great shells. Those were rare events, where many families would band together to harvest a gem heart for growing crops, then feast upon the slain beast. That did not seem the future of their shards anymore. If the humans discover we have these, Eshenai thought, it will be war. Give the shards to me, Melu said to excitement. She stepped forward, though Thud put his hand upon her breastplate as if to restrain her. She hummed to betrayal, and he hummed to irritation, a challenge from both. This could get ugly very quickly. No, Eshenai said. No, none of us will take them. None of us are ready. She looked to the elderly shard bearer. You keep them. 
With plate, you are as firm as any warrior, Sheriffal. I merely ask that you stand with us today. The drums stopped sounding. I will not lift the blade against other listeners, Sheriffal said to skepticism. You will not need to, Eshenai said. Our goal today will not be to win a battle, but to promise a new beginning. A short time later, they stepped out of the city. Once, gates had likely stood in this opening, but the listeners could not create wooden marvels on that scale. Not yet. The battle had already started, though it hadn't moved to close combat yet. Her family's warriors would step forward and throw their spears, and the other family would dodge. Then the attacking family would return spears. If someone was hit, one side might withdraw and give up the battle. If not, eventually one side might rush the other. Spren of all varieties had been drawn to the event and spun or hovered around the perimeters. Eshenai's family's archers hung back, their numbers a show of strength, though they wouldn't use their weapons here. Bows were too deadly and too accurate to be used in harming others. There had been times, unfortunately, when in the heat of fighting, traditions had been broken. Normal battles had become horrific massacres. Esh and I had never been part of one of those, but she'd seen the after effects during her childhood when passing a failed assault on another city. Today, both sides stopped as the war forms emerged, accompanied by a full shard bearer in glistening plate. Eshenai's family parted, humming to awe or excitement. Eshenai picked up a spear, as did several of the others. They came to a halt in the center of the field. The opposing family scrambled back, their warriors brandishing spears. Their postures, and the few sounds of humming Eshenai could make out, were terrified. We have found war form, Eshenai shouted to joy. An inviting rhythm, not an angry one. Come, join us, enter our city, live with us. We will share our knowledge with you. The others shied away further. One of them shouted to reprimand, You'll consume us. Make us slaves. We won't be our own family any longer. We are all one family, Eshonai said. You fear being made slaves? Did you see the poor slave forms the humans had? Did you see the armor of the humans? Their weapons? Did you see the fineness of their clothing? The wagons they created? You cannot fight that. I cannot fight that. But together we could fight that. There are tens of thousands of listeners around the plains. When the humans return, let us show them a united nation, not a bunch of squabbling tribes. She gestured to the other war forms, then let her gaze linger on Sheriffel in his shard plate. We won't fight you today, Eshenai said, turning back to the enemy family. None of this family will fight you today. But if any of you persist, you will personally discover the true might of this form. We are going to approach the Living Songs family next.
You may choose to be the first to join with our new nation and be recognized for your wisdom for generations. Or you can be left until the end to come groveling for membership once our union is nearly complete. She hefted her spear and threw it, shocking herself with the power behind that throw. It soared over the enemy family and disappeared far into the distance. She heard more than one of them humming to the rhythm of the terrors. She nodded to the others, and they joined her, marching into the city. A few seemed annoyed. They wanted a battle to test their abilities. She'd never known listeners to be bloodthirsty, and she didn't feel this form had changed her that much. But she did admit she felt a certain eagerness. We should train, she said to the others. Work out some of our aggression. That sounds wonderful, Thud said. As long as we can do it in front of everyone else, Melu said to irritation. I'd like them to understand how easily I could have cracked their skulls. She looked to Eshenai. But that was well done. I guess I'm glad I didn't have to rip anyone apart. How did you learn to give speeches? One of the others asked from behind. Did you learn that talking to those trees out in the wilderness? I'm not a hermit, Dolimid, she said to irritation. I just like the idea of being free, of not being locked into one location. As long as we don't know what is out there, we're likely to be surprised. Tell me, would we be scrambling now to get our people in order? If we'd simply explored our surroundings, we could have been preparing to face the humans for generations if we hadn't been so afraid. The others hummed to consolation, understanding. Why had Esh and I had so much trouble persuading people before? Was her present ease because of the connection she felt with these listeners, the first war forms? There was so much to learn from this form. So much to experiment with, she felt a spring in her step. Perhaps this would be a better form for exploration. She could leap obstacles, run faster. There was so much possibility. They entered the city, her family's warriors, those who had been throwing their spears outside, trotting in with them, immediately accepting the authority of the war forms. As they passed Sherafel's hut, she saw Venli again, lurking in the shadows. This was her victory, after a fashion. Esha and I probably should have gone to congratulate her, but couldn't bring herself to do it. Venli didn't need more songs praising her. She already had a big enough ego. Instead, Esha and I led the group to the storm shelter, where the rest of their family was emerging. Each and every one deserved to see the new form up close. 69. Pure Tones of Roshar. I leave you now to your own company. From Rhythm of War, page 27. Navani hit the tuning fork and touched it to a glowing diamond. When she pulled it away from the gemstone, a tiny light of stormlight followed behind it 
And when she touched the fork to an empty diamond, the stormlight flowed into it. The transfer would continue as long as the fork made the second diamond vibrate. Sometimes I think of it like a gas, she thought, taking notes on the speed of the flow. And sometimes a liquid. I keep wavering between the two, trying to define it. But it must be neither one. Stormlight is something else, with some of the properties of both a liquid and a gas. After completing this control experiment and timing how quickly the stormlight flowed, she set up the real experiment. She did this inside a large steel box her scholars had created for dangerous experiments, soul cast into shape with a thick glass window at one end. She'd forced the enemy to drag it in from the hallway outside, then place it on top of her desk. She wasn't certain if this would save her from a potential explosion, but since the box didn't have a top, the force of the destruction should go upward, and as long as she stayed low and watched through the window, it should shield her. It was the best she could do in these difficult circumstances. She told the singers she was taking normal precautions and tried not to indicate to them that she expected an explosion. And indeed she didn't. The sphere that had killed her scholars had not been void light, but something else. Something Navani didn't yet understand. She was convinced that mixing void light and stormlight wouldn't create an explosion, but a new kind of light, like tower light. She began this next experiment the same way as the previous one, drawing out stormlight and sending it toward another diamond. Then she reached into the box with tongs and placed a void light diamond in the center of the flow between the stormlight diamond and the tuning fork. The stormlight didn't react to the void light diamond at all. It simply streamed around the dark gemstone and continued to the vessel diamond. As the tuning fork's tone quieted, the stream weakened. When the fork fell silent, the stormlight hanging in the air between the two diamonds puffed away and vanished. Well, she hadn't expected that to do anything. Now for a better test. She'd spent several days working under a singular hypothesis that if stormlight reacted to a tone, void light and tower light would as well. She'd needed to take a crash course in music theory to properly test the idea. The Alethi traditionally used a ten-note scale, though it was more accurately two five-note quintaves. This was right and orderly, and the greatest and most famous compositions were all in this scale. However, it wasn't the only scale in use around the world. There were dozens. The Thalans, for example, preferred a twelve-note scale, a strange number, but the twelve steps were mathematically pleasing. In researching the tone the tuning fork created, she'd discovered something incredible. Anciently, people had used a three-note scale, and a few of the compositions remained. The tone that drew stormlight was the first of the three notes from this ancient scale. With some effort, it had required sending Fuse to Kolinar through the Oath Gate to raid the Royal Music Conservatory, She'd obtained tuning forks for the other two notes in this scale. 
To her delight, Voidlight responded to the third of the three notes. She hadn't been able to find any indication in her reading that people had once known these three notes correlated to the three ancient gods. No Alethi scholars seemed to know that one of these tones could prompt a reaction in stormlight, though Raboniel had, upon questioning, said she'd known. Indeed, she'd been surprised to learn that Navani had only recently discovered the pure tones of Roshar, as she called them. Navani had tried singing the proper tones, but hadn't been able to make the light respond. Perhaps she couldn't match the pitch well enough, because Raboniel had been able to do it, singing and touching one gemstone, then moving her finger to another while holding the note. The stormlight had followed her finger just as it did a tuning fork. Today, Raboniel was off tending to other tasks, but Navani could use the tuning forks to replicate her singing ability. Three tones, a note for honor, a note for odium, and a note for cultivation. Yet Voronism only worshipped the almighty, honor. Theology would have to wait for another time. For now, she set up her next experiment. She created streams of stormlight and voidlight, drawing each out from a diamond in a corner of her box, and crossed the streams at the center. The two lights pushed upon one another and swirled as they met, but then separated and streamed to their separate forks. All right, Navani said, writing in her notebook. What about this? She picked up the partially empty voidlight diamond and then brought out a fresh stormlight diamond, fully infused. In Fabrial Science, you captured a spren by creating a gemstone with a kind of vacuum in it. You drew out the stormlight, leaving a sphere with a void or suction inside. It would then pull in a nearby spren, which was made of light. It was like any pressure differential. She hoped to be able to refill the void light sphere with stormlight now that a portion of the void light had been removed. She hit the tuning fork, started the stormlight streaming out of its diamond, then tried to get it to go into the void light diamond by making it vibrate to the fork's tone. Unfortunately, when she touched the tuning fork to the void light diamond, it immediately stopped vibrating and the tone died, extinguished like a candle doused with water. She was able to get the stormlight to bunch up against the void light diamond by putting the fork next to it. But when she got the void light to stream out toward the side of the table, theoretically creating an active pressure differential in that diamond, she couldn't get it to suck stormlight in. Only once all of the void light was out could she infuse the diamond with stormlight. Like oil and water indeed, she said, making notes. Yet the way the streams didn't repel one another when touching felt like proof they weren't opposites. She rose and, after noting the results of this experiment, went to talk to the sibling. Navani could easily fool the guards into thinking she was simply strolling among the bookshelves to read a passage or two, as she often did this. Today, she began picking through the books on the back shelf, while resting her hand on the sibling's vein in the wall. 
Are we being watched? Navani asked. I've told you, the siblings said. Void Spren can't be invisible in the tower. That protection is different from the ones suppressing enemy surge binders, and Raboniel hasn't corrupted it yet. You also told me you could sense if a Void Spren was near. Yes. So? Are any near? No, the siblings said. You do not trust my word? Let's just call it a healthy paranoia on my part, Navani said. Tell me again of you continue to experiment with Fabrials, the sibling interrupted. We need to talk more about that. I do not like what you've been doing. I haven't captured any more Spren, Navani whispered. I've been working with Stormlight and Voidlight. Dangerous work. The man who forges weapons can claim he's never killed, but he still prepares for the slaughter. If we're going to restore your abilities, I need to understand how light works. So unless you have a better idea for me to do this, I'm going to have to continue to use gemstones and, yes, fabrials. The sibling fell silent. Tell me again about tower light, Navani said. This is growing tedious. Do you want to be saved or not? Fine. Tower light is my light, the light I could create. Did you need a bondsmith to make it? No, I could make it on my own. And my bondsmith could create it through their bond with me. And that light, in turn, powered the tower's defenses. Not only the defenses, everything. Why does it no longer work? I already explained that. This is a common investigative method, Navani said calmly, flipping through her book with her left hand. My goal is to make you restate facts in different ways, leading you to explain things differently, or to remember details you forgot. I haven't forgotten anything. The defenses no longer work because I don't have the light for them. I lost most of my strength when I lost the ability to hear the two pure tones of Roshar. I can make only a tiny amount of light, enough to power a few of the tower's basic fabrials. Two tones of Roshar? Navani said. There are three. No, there are two. One from my mother, one from my father. The tone of odium is an interloper. False. Could part of the reason you lost your abilities relate to that tone becoming a pure tone of Roshar? Odium truly becoming one of the three gods? I don't know, the sibling admitted. Navani noted this hypothesis. We need to find a way to restore my tower light, the sibling said, and remove the void light from my system. And that, Navani said, is exactly what I'm working on. If she could figure out how to combine two lights, then it would be the first step toward creating tower light. She clearly needed an emulsifier, a facilitator, 
What kind of emulsifier could stick to stormlight and make it mix with void light? She shook her head, taking her hand off the vein on the wall. She'd been here too long, so she took a book and strolled to the front of the room, lost in thought. However, as she reached her desk, she found a small box waiting for her. She glanced at the guard by the door, who nodded. Raboniel had sent it. Navani opened the box, breathless, and found a brightly glowing diamond. At first glance, it seemed to be another stormlight sphere. But as she held it up and placed it next to a true one, she could see the green tinge to the one Raboniel had sent. Lifelight. She'd promised to get some for Navani. Did she say how she acquired this? Navani asked. The guard shook his head. Navani had a guess. The sibling had lost sight of Lyft, but had explained something was odd about that girl. Something Navani held as a hope that might get them out of this. Hands steady, though anticipation spren shot up around her, Navani used the middle tuning fork on this new diamond. And it worked. She was able to draw lifelight out and send it streaming into a gemstone. Towerlight was lifelight and stormlight combined. So perhaps lifelight, the light of cultivation, had some property that allowed it to mix with other lights. Holding her breath, Navani repeated her earlier experiments, except with lifelight instead of void light. She failed. She couldn't get stormlight and lifelight to mix. No use of tuning forks, no touching of the streams or clever use of gemstone differentials worked. She tried mixing void light and lifelight. She tried mixing all three. She tried every experiment she'd listed in her brainstorming sessions earlier. Then she did them all again, until, because each experiment allowed a little lifelight to vanish into the air, she'd used it all up. Shooing away exhaustion spren, she stood, frustrated. Another dead end. This was as bad as the morning's experiments, when she'd tried everything she could think of, including using two tuning forks at once, to make Towerlight move from its gemstone. She'd failed at that as well. She gathered all the used diamonds and deposited them by the door guard to be picked up and reinfused. There was a high storm coming today. After that, she paced, frustrated. She knew she shouldn't let the lack of results bother her. Real scientists understood that experiments like this weren't failures. They were necessary steps on the way to discovery. In fact, it would have been remarkable and completely unconventional to find a good result so early in the process. The problem was, scientists didn't have to work under such terrible deadlines or pressures. She was isolated, each moment ticking them closer to disaster. The only lead she had was in trying to mix the lights in the hope that she could eventually create more tower light to help the sibling. She wandered the room, pretending to inspect the spines of books on the shelves. If I make my discovery, Raboniel will know, since a guard is always watching. She'll force the answer out of me. And so even in these attempts to escape, I'm furthering her goals. 
whatever those are. Navani was on the cusp of something important. The revelations she'd been given about Stormlight fundamentally changed their understanding of it and the world at large. Three types of power. The possibility they could be blended. And possibly something else, judging by that strange sphere that warped the air around it. Her instinct said that this knowledge would come out eventually, and the ones who controlled it, exploited it, would be the ones who won the war. I need another plan, she decided. If she did discover how to make tower light, and if the shield did fall, Navani needed a way to isolate the crystal pillar for a short time, to defend it, perhaps to work on it. Navani gripped her notebook in her safe hand to appear as if she were writing down the titles of books. Instead, she quickly took notes on an idea. She'd been told she could have anything she needed, so long as it was relevant to her experiments. They also let her store equipment out in the hallway. So, what if she created some fabrile weapons, then stored them in the hallway? Innocent-looking fabrials that once activated could be used to immobilize guards or fused, coming to stop her from working on the pillar. She sketched out some ideas, traps she could create using seemingly innocent fabrile parts, pain rails to administer agony and cause the muscles to lock up, heating fabrials to burn and scald. Yes, she could create a series of defenses in the form of failed experiments, then store them haphazardly in crates along the hallway. She could even arm them by using voidspren gems, as she could demand those for use in her experiments. These plans soothed her. This was something meaningful she could do. However, the experiments and their potential still itched at her. What was Raboniel's true goal? Was it to make a weapon herself? Like the one that had destroyed the room and Navani's two scientists? A few hours had passed, so it wouldn't look strange if she went to the back of the stacks again. She picked up a book and settled down in a chair she'd placed nearby. Although she wasn't directly visible to the guard, she pretended to read as she reached her hand to the wall and touched the vein. Any spren nearby? Navani asked. I cannot feel any, the sibling said with a resigned tone. Good. Tell me, do you know anything of the explosion that happened on the day of the invasion? It involved two of my scientists in a room on the fifth floor. I felt it, but I do not know what caused it. Have you ever heard of a sphere or a light that warps the air around it? One that appears to be void light, unless you look at it long enough to notice the warping effect? No, the sibling said. I've never heard or seen anything like that, though it sounds dangerous. Navani considered, tapping her finger against the wall. I haven't been able to get any of the lights to mix. Do you know of any potential binding agent that could make them stick together? Do you know how tower light is mixed from storm light and life light? They don't mix 
the siblings said. They come together as one. Like I am a product of my mother and father, so Towerlight is a product of me. And stop asking me the same questions. I don't care about your investigative methods. I've told you what I know. Stop making me repeat myself. Navani took a deep breath, calming herself with effort. Fine. Have you been able to eavesdrop on Raboniel at all? Not much. I can only hear things near a few people that are relevant. I can see the wind runner. I think the edge dancer has been surrounded by Ralkalest, which is why she's invisible. Also, I can see one particular regal. Any ideas on why that is? No. Regals weren't often in the tower in the past, and never this variety. She can speak all languages. Perhaps this is why I can see near her. Though she vanishes sometimes, so I cannot see all she does. I can also see near the crystal pillar, but with the fields set up, I hear mere echoes of what is happening outside. Tell me those, then. It's nothing relevant. Raboniel is trying her own experiments with the light, and she hasn't gotten as far as you have. This seems to frustrate her. Curious. That did a little for Navani's self-esteem. She really wants this hybrid light. I wonder, maybe Fabriel's made with a hybrid stormlight void light would work in the tower, even if the protections were turned against her again. Maybe that is why she wants it. You are foolish to presume to know what one of the fused wants. She is thousands of years old. You can't outthink her. You'd better hope that I can. Navani flipped a few pages in her notebook. I've been thinking of other ways out of this. What if we found you someone to bond, to make them radiant? We could- No, never again. Hear me out, Navani said. You've said you'll never bond a human again because of the things we do to Spren. But what about a singer? Could you theoretically bond one of them? We are talking of resisting them, and now you suggest I bond one? That seems insane. Maybe not, Navani said. There's a Parshendian Bridge 4. I've met him, and Kaladin has vouched for him. He claims that his people rejected the fused long ago. What about him? Not a human. Not someone who has ever created a Fabriel someone who knows the rhythms of Roshar. The sibling was silent, and Navani wondered if the conversation was over. Sibling? she asked. I had not considered this, they said. A singer who does not serve odium? I will need to think. It would certainly surprise Raboniel, who thinks that I am dead or sleeping. In any case, I cannot form a bond now with the protections up. I would need him to touch my pillar. What if I had him here? Navani said. Ready to try when the shield falls? And with some distractions in place to give you time to talk to him? I cannot form a bond with just anyone, the sibling said. 
In the past, I spent years evaluating bondsmith squires to select one who fit me exactly. Even they eventually betrayed me, though not as badly as other humans. Can we really afford pickiness right now? It's not pickiness. It's the nature of spren and the bond. The person must be willing to swear the correct oaths, to unite instead of divide. They must mean it, and the oaths must be accepted. It is not simply a matter of throwing the first person you find at me. Beyond that, since I cannot create tower light, they will not be able to either. A bond would do nothing unless we solve the problems with my powers. It would be better if you focused on that problem instead. Fine, Navani said, sensing an opening. But I need time to research all of this. It is difficult to work while feeling I have a knife to my neck. If I knew the nodes were being defended, that would take the pressure off me. Tell me where one of them is. I have a list here of plans to protect it. I can read them off to you. The sibling was silent, so Navani continued. We can have Kaladin start searching, loudly and obviously, on a different level, leading the enemy on a chase in the wrong direction. In the meantime, while they're distracted, we could sneak up to the node and reinforce its defenses. We have some creme that hasn't hardened yet, kept wet in the tower stores. We could seal up the node location entirely, maybe run the creme through with some training sheaths for shard blades, so it would be extra difficult to cut. That could earn us hours to get troops in to defend it, if it does get discovered. Or, if I knew where one of the nodes was, I might be able to have Kaladin begin infusing it with more stormlight. That might counteract the void light that Raboniel has used on you. If she can corrupt you through a node, could we not perhaps cleanse you through one? I think it's worth trying, because my efforts to create tower light are stalled. She waited, gripping her pad tightly. Her other ideas were sketchier than those. She wouldn't use them unless these arguments didn't work. So good with words. Humans are like persuasions, Spren. I can't speak with one of you without being changed. Navani continued to wait. Silence was best now. Fine, the sibling said. One of the two remaining nodes is in the well at the center of the place you call the breakaway market. It is near other fabrials there. One hidden among many. On the first floor? Navani asked. That's such a populated area. All of the nodes are down low. There was talk of installing others farther away. But my bondsmith did not have the resources. My falling out with the humans was driving them away. The project wasn't completed. Only the four on the first few floors were completed. Navani frowned. Though the well was a clever place to hide a fabrial, many of the workings of the tower remained mysterious to modern scholars. So a cluster of gemstones working as pumps might indeed camouflage another fabrial. 
In fact, Navani had studied drawings of those pumps herself. Had this mechanism been there, unnoticed, all along? This is a good node for your agent to visit, the siblings said, because it can be reached from the back ways. Have your wind runner visit it through the aquifers, and we will see if, by infusing it with stormlight, he can counteract the corruption. It might not work, as I am not simply of honor or of cultivation, but it could help. And the final node? Navani asked. Is mine alone, the sibling replied. Show me that your work on this one helps, human, and then we can speak further. A fair compromise, Navani said. I am willing to listen, sibling. She left the wall and grabbed some books to read to cover what she'd been doing. And she did need to study more, after all. She'd have loved to have more books on music theory, but this archive didn't have anything more specific on the topic. She did have Calamy's notes about the gemstones they'd discovered that used certain buzzing vibrations as substitutes for letters. Perhaps those would help. She was browsing through those notes, walking idly among the stacks, when she saw the sibling's light flashing. She hurried over, Nervous about how bright the light was, she glanced at the guard, hoping he hadn't seen, and put her hand to the wall. You need to- They found the node in the well. We're too late. What, already? I am as good as dead. Contact Kaladin. They already have the node, and he's too far away. We- Contact Kaladin, Navani said. Now. I'll find a way to distract Raboniel.